All right, here we go. Lord, help. Amen. And more on that in just a little bit. So um, here we go. This we've been uh, so far, at least we've talked about, you know, is hope possible? And hope was defined as being able to welcome the future or wake up tomorrow and welcome that. And then last week a bit about, you know, what if you're scared? And we talked a little bit about uh, how one can proceed and go forward even in the, in the face of fear. And tonight, I just want to talk a little bit. I want to back up and take, I know this has been an outstanding question because a couple of people have asked me about it, but I do want to take it under this topic of what actually do you want? What are you, what are you looking for in this very difficult world? What is it that you're, what you're looking for? And so I want to start with just the notion of telling stories. If you know anything about history or philosophy or English or uh, theology, the history of the world can be written as the stories we tell about ourselves. This is true, as you know, for example, from the oral tradition of the Old Testament. And part of the reason in Deuteronomy why they would say, for example, memorize these stories, bind them to your hand, put them on your forehead, teach them to your children. Why? Because they weren't written down yet. There were storytelling was the way that things survived. And, you know, that's still true. It's as true for postmoderns as it is for Navy SEALs. I talked a little bit about Navy SEALs, right? Think it, see it, say it, do it. And for postmoderns, Joan Didion, I think, we are the stories that we tell about ourselves. And of course, the dilemma in America right now can be defined by whose story will win out, or which stories will be allowed to be told, or which stories will have sway with us, right? So there's nothing new about this. Telling stories is how we survive. It's how we proceed. It's how we learn. It's how we believe. We become the stories that we tell about ourselves. So I give you this uh, article from the Wall Street Journal, if you can see it right here. This is written by uh, a Jewish woman. She identifies as Jewish and she's a therapist. So I'm just going to read you just a little bit. Can you see it? I hope on the, a part of your screen. As a therapist, I'm often asked to explain why depression and anxiety are so common among children and adolescents. One of the most important explanations, and perhaps the most neglected, is declining interest in religion. This cultural shift has already proved disastrous for millions of vulnerable young people. Okay, then the next paragraph, Harvard did a study. And then the next paragraph, what happened when they did the study? They find out if you go to church or synagogue or mosque, good things happen to you. Your mental health is better. You don't do risky things. It's good for you to go to a religious place. And since the next paragraph, since the United States has had a decrease in in religion, there seems to be this uh, correlation that's an increase then to anxiety and fear. So now check this right at the top of the page. Nihilism, which is basically the belief that life is meaningless, Nihilism is fertilizer of anxiety and depression. And being realistic is overrated. The belief in God, in a protective and guiding figure to rely on when times are tough, 
is one of the best kinds of support for kids in an increasingly pessimistic world. That's only one reason, from a purely mental health perspective, to pass down a faith tradition. I am often asked by parents, how do I talk to my child about death if I don't believe in God or heaven? My answer is always the same, lie. Isn't that genius? The idea that you simply die and turn to dust may work for some adults, but it doesn't help children. Belief in heaven helps them grapple with this tremendous and incomprehensible loss. In an age of broken families, distracted parents, school violence, and nightmarish global warming predictions, imagination plays a big part in children's, in children's ability to cope. So what's the moral of the story, Gretchen Shield? Pay attention. This will be important for our preschool tomorrow. Walk in tomorrow, and the first thing you should do is start lying to the kids. Apparently, that's the best we can do, right? Well, I mean, it's remarkable first to read this, uh, and you ask all kinds of questions about, huh, if my parents lie to me about this, uh, I wonder what else they're lying to me about. I mean, this isn't on the level of Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny. This is the biggest thing that most people will face, which is, I'm alive. I'm going to die. What does that mean? And then your parents, if they love you, they'll lie to you. Well, you know, we have another take on that. Because um, lies never end well. You know, I've made friends with an attorney in the congregation who tells me, it's never the crime, it's always the lie which I now have observed is, is often true, right? Uh, the penalty for the, for the lie is always much greater than it is for the crime, it seems. But you who are theologically clever, you remember that Jesus himself says, Satan is the source of lies. So you never tell a lie because when you tell a lie, you're in league with Satan. So Satan is the father of lies and Jesus says, with his lies, he murders us. It's a very interesting passage. You know, Jesus is talking back and forth with some critics, and they say, you're a liar. And he says, no, 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 no. Satan is the father of lies. And it says, he basically says, your lies will kill you. So it's why, you know, thou shalt not bear false witness is a commandment. And it's also why, you know, take your medicine tell the true story, but never, ever lie. And I give you sort of the practical thing then, even for, um, for us who think we might not be damaged by this, you know, a paper thin lie can hold back a reservoir of gifts. So you, you lie to your children about death. You lie to your children about God. You lie to your children about whatever you want just to help them get over today. But there will be a day when whatever they face is too big. And all that time, they will not have lived by the stories. They will not have lived by the tradition. They will not have learned the truth. And they will not have the resources. They won't have the divine gifts to carry on. So instead, um, you know, my suggestion, and this is probably the most basic relief to anxiety and fear there is, uh, you know, I gave you this in a sermon a few years ago. Every sin starts with a lie. And this is the lie that starts every sin. Jesus doesn't love me. 
every last sin, every last worry, every last anxiety, every last depression starts with the notion that I'm alone and unloved, and particularly that Jesus doesn't love me. If Jesus doesn't love me, if God doesn't love me, I'm on my own to do what I want and take the consequences as I may. But if, in fact, Jesus does love me, which means that Jesus stays near me and that Jesus would never hurt me, so that even if I suffer, I'll survive. And since Jesus can't be broken, I can't be broken. I was thinking today, um, you know, my old friend Norman Nagel, who, you know, the brightest man I ever knew and the most spiritual man, um, from a medical area, he had a stroke uh, about 12 or 13 years before he died, which debilitated him, uh, both in speech and also in motion. So in a wheelchair and in a bed, for the last 12 years of his life. And that, you know, was the man who could have helped the church in a way that few other people could help the church. And, you know, eight or nine years in when I would visit him, you know, I once asked him about that. And he said, well, there must be a blessing in this for me somewhere. And I've always, I've always puzzled about that. Um, it of course was said with some sadness and some expectation, but it wasn't sent, said with anxiety or worry or fear or despair or hatred. It was said with patience and hopefulness. Um, but till the day he died, he sort of carried on with what had come his way, even at the hand of somebody else who um, didn't care for him well. But see this very confident story Jesus loves me. Jesus never leaves me. Jesus never hurts me. And come what may, I'm in God's hands. Come what may, there's a blessing here for me somewhere. The pull of Christianity or the mark of Christian maturity would be the patience that waits on that blessing even if it's not seen before we die. So I, I want to take you through, you know, a couple of things, maybe in that direction. Um, I'm suggesting to you at point number two, this is what made Jesus so attractive. So it made him so interesting. He was so compelling. People would come near to him and they would sense something different about him. People who were Pharisees or thought they were holy or were always judging other people, he made them extraordinarily uncomfortable. But sinners, you know, they sit next to the Son of God, and at first they barely notice. But then eventually, as he tells his stories, and I wonder if you can broaden the notion of story here, not just to be what he says, but also what he does. So he lives out his stories. Now, as he tells them his stories, they suddenly have this epic. They're part of a bigger story that makes sense of their life and reorders it and guarantees a blessing 
and gives strength in the midst of pain and gives the sort of hope that would let us welcome tomorrow. So we don't despair, be senseless to despair. Christ is here with us and we know how our story ends. Um, Jesus' stories, this is the last point right here under number two. Jesus' stories bestow love, which is they take mercy and they apply it to our suffering. And because of that, the consequent is hope. So, you know, I said this at the beginning, you know, like humility, you don't aim at humility if you want it, you aim at memory. Um, If you want hope, you aim at love. And it's funny to think that God's nature is love. Um, The embrace of that love bestows really everything else. So a couple of stories to suggest that, you know, Jesus started very modestly and this kind of interesting question, um, you know, John the Baptist is there. Jesus walks by. He says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They, these, these two disciples follow after Jesus and he turns around and he goes, what do you want? Like, what in the world are you here for? What are you seeking? And then they say, where are you staying? Which is a loaded term, like, is there room for us? And he says, sure, come along and you'll see things, right? You'll see my story. And then um, the gospel from Sunday is just happens just a little bit later. Now Jesus is out praying. And instead of just two people, uh, there's the text. Everyone is looking for you. So Jesus goes from a couple of guys to everywhere. He's suddenly famous and he can't even get away to pray. And then this just at the top of the page, he said to them, hey, let's go to the next town so I can tell my story there. That's the reason I came out to tell my story, right? So he went through Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and casting out the demons. And that's, that's our, um, that's our spot too, whether we know it or not. We we're broken and Jesus uh, comes to us. We we're looking for consolation. We want our pieces put back together. We'd like our worries um, calm down. We'd like our anxieties to go away. We'd like our fear to be taken from us. Um, we just want somebody to make life right again. So, um, you know, you heard the story and it was a very nice sermon on Sunday about what happened in this particular case. It's like so many other things. Jesus comes to them, comes to Peter's mother-in-law, for example, he comes to her The action is always with him. He comes to her, he reaches down, he pulls her up and he makes her fit to serve. That's your story too. So Jesus comes to you, he reaches down, he pulls you up and he makes you fit to serve. And then 33 in the middle of the page there in bold and the whole city was gathered together at the door. So see, it's interesting how you can't sort of pull these things apart. If people look at you and say, Those folks at St. John are remarkably calm in the midst of this. That's the one church where people aren't fighting over, you know, how to proceed. Or that's the one church where people are generous. Or, you know, Pastor Nelson and Gretchen and all those parents who are running the Sunday school, you know, despite the fact that the Sunday school is closed. It's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. The way these people are working, Pastor Nelson, you know, thinking all this up and Gretchen pitching in and all these parents. I mean, 
everybody else is moaning about how nothing works. Our kids are getting special attention from their pastor and from their teacher. It's startling, right? What makes these people different? Why can they be calm when everybody else is anxious? Well, it's because Jesus has told them this story. I love you. I stick with you. I won't hurt you. All is well. There must be a blessing for us in here somewhere. So, you know, what Jesus does is he breaks apart the world the way it is now. He breaks evil things. And then he puts all our pieces back together. We were disordered and um, he orders us back together. And so I've kind of, um, I've just given you the summary of that here in six, that Jesus comes near and he touches us. And, you know, you're all, you know, you're good church folks. I mean, you know how he touches you. He takes takes his words and he rubs them in your ears and, you know, he puts his body and blood on your tongue and, um, you know, he baptizes you. I mean, the last thing I did, the last thing that happened, I mean, 14 minutes after the hour, I got noticed that a new baby had been born and couldn't we get that baby baptized right away? You kind of go, that's fabulous. I mean, those, how, how can somebody, how can a mother who's just given birth, how can the first thought be the first email? My baby was just born. Can we get, can we have a baptism? I mean, it's startling, right? Because what you wouldn't want there to be any time when your child wasn't connected to the story, right? There, you wouldn't want to leave your child untouched. So um, if you want your life to be well-ordered, if you want your anxiety to go away, um, if you want to live without fear, if even in pain, you want to know that there's a blessing here, somewhere for you. Um, you tell yourself the story over and over and over and over and over and over again. You pray the story over and over and over and over and over and over again. You never miss church. Why? Because there's a commandment about it. No, you never miss church because Jesus has agreed to meet you there and touch you. So you don't have to be afraid. Jesus has agreed to meet you there and touch you so that your wrongs will be made right. Jesus has agreed to meet you there and console you so you don't have to be anxious. Jesus has agreed to meet you there and love you so that you can be hopeful tomorrow. Come what may, you're in God's hands, right? I mean, this is, you know, this is just, I mean, I know you know this, but we need to say it out loud and we need to say it again and again, especially at a time when everybody else seems to be going crazy. So um, now just a slight pause and maybe slightly more academic thing. Um, a couple of you have observed to me that um, Jesus stories, I should be careful about this uh, because Jesus stories are different than regular stories. Uh, it's true. No doubt about it. Um, but we have to ask what makes Jesus stories different. And the thing that makes his stories different is that they are alive. Right. So, you know, five years ago or, six, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about evil and anger. And one of the things that we talked about is the sequence of evil and anger and how especially evil and anger have this big crescendo and then they explode and they disappear. Like I think I used the example of a flashbang grenade for you. You have a flash and a bang and you're disoriented and then it's over, especially when you deal with things that are demonic what often happens is, is it gets so horrible. You can 
you can you think you barely can stand it and then it's suddenly over it's broken right um opposite that are the stories that are enlivened by the holy spirit stories that don't break stories that keep getting stronger keep moving keep pushing you into the future keep helping you along the way keep encouraging you uh, as you live the life you're supposed to live which is a life of love so you see the way Jesus sees and you do what Jesus does and you say what Jesus says and then people say you know they're all gathered at the front door saying why are these people so different so and then often you know there's kind of this knee jerk reaction to talk about the inspiration of scripture which in itself is not bad except that Lutherans over the past 50 years have borrowed a lot of theology from Baptists and other folks which isn't their strongest um it's not our strongest suit so let me just say you know one way to talk about this when you talk about the inspiration of scripture is that um the inspiration of scripture among many other things but at least for tonight means that Jesus tells you the stories he wants you to hear and you hear them the way he wants you to hear them right so Jesus tells us the story he wants us to hear in the way he wants us to hear him and then of course they have this added advantage of being true so now we're all the way back to the lie at the beginning don't tell your kids lies because every lie is found out at the end of the day every lie will be found out and uh, trust is destroyed but if you tell your kids what's true if you tell them the stories that are true and you don't have to justify them you don't have to amend them you don't have to help them along it'd be nice if you got out of the way but uh you know the stories have their own power and they have their own power because the holy spirit is the one who's really telling the story and when he tells the story the story is energized by love you have to if think about this if you can physically think about this that when you tell your kids a story from scriptures it's like you drench them it's like you soak them in it like you imagine them being drenched in water the way that they're drenched in words and that's the sort of thing that changes your perspective on life And so um you know I have this here of course you know just today I was trying to figure out what sort of Easter vigil you know we could have because the primary notion of the Easter vigil as you know is you read these old stories and you say to yourself well those stories are my story this story is my story so you know I was selecting a different group of texts for this year but among them um is a story of the dry bones one that we don't normally read but this year we'll read it because everybody needs a bit of resurrection this year. You know, that story of the Holy Spirit coming from the words of the prophet onto the bones and making them alive is exactly the thing that happens to you. The bones are worse than you, they're dead. It's beyond anxiety and worry, it's even beyond fear, it's all the way to death. And what happens? when the story is told to the bones and the spirit shakes all of a sudden you remember how it goes the bones go back together and the tendons suddenly appear and flesh wrap around the bones and suddenly everybody's alive again well um 
that's what happens to you. Now, um, last thing, because I really am going to end at nine o'clock and I'll hang around for you if you want. I've tried to give you um, a couple of very short prayers because I think you're up in the middle of the night and I think you're distracted in the middle of the day. And I think that more hours are designated for anxiety than for the office of prayer. And I think the only way that you can be relieved of that is to have something that you can do immediately. So I've tried to give you three short prayers. You see them there on the screen. Lord, as you will and as you know, have mercy. So this great confession that the Lord wants some things and the Lord knows some things. I mean, even what he wants for me and even what he knows about me when I disappoint him, his ultimate word to me is mercy. So whatever happens in your life, the Lord knows it and he wills your good and he'll be merciful to you. So that's in one sense, Lord, you know, sort of for guidance, Lord, as you will and as you know, have mercy. And then last week, you know, I said the story was a bit, um, you know, simple, but it has a punchline. Jesus, you who do Hebrew, hineni, this is the same thing that Samuel said when he was this famous Hebrew word, what famous, uh, what, 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 what Samuel says when he's dropped off in the temple and he starts to hear, and the, the priest find, Samuel, hineni, I'm here, right? And then finally the priest says, that's the Lord talking, don't wake me up again. Jesus, here I am, it's Francis. But then the other side of that, Francis, here I am, it's Jesus. You know, just feel free to insert your own name there. Um, Jesus, hey, I'm here. Or tonight, if you're up in the middle of the night, um, Lord, help. And then just this response, you know, just say, I'll endure it for the sake of Christ. Now, how can you say that? You can say that because Jesus loves you. Jesus never leaves you, and Jesus never hurts you. So well, come what may, you're in God's hands. You can endure it. Um, but finally, the last thing, um, where do we get this? Well, actually, it's the second half of what I gave you. You're, so bedtime, you know, bedtime stories are good. You tell them over and over again. You can begin to anticipate what's happening. Okay, here it is again. Abba Macarius was asked, how should one pray? The old man said, there's no need at all to make long discourses. So, you know, resist the wheat and urge to figure out what the Lord should do. Um, put a PowerPoint presentation together, you know, have some convincing music and roll it out over the course of several days. Instead, um, there's no need to make a long discourse. It is enough to stretch out your hands. So classic position of prayer. You see the pastors do this at the altar. You Put your hands out, east and west. You open them with your palms up, which means you've got nothing to offer, but you're you're ready to receive all the gifts that the Lord would give. So I got nothing, but I'll have everything. So your your body tells the story, right? It's enough to stretch out one's hands and say, Lord, as you will and as you know, have mercy. And if the conflict grows fiercer, you know, if evil increases and it feels like a flashbang and it never, it, it, you pray and you're more anxious and you can hardly stand it. And, you know, it's like the first week and this 
prison is a living hell and it's never quiet and everything you can possibly imagine is happening to everybody around me and I'll never get out. And if the conflict grows fiercer, say, Lord, help. He knows very well what we need and he shows us his mercy. You don't need to jack Jesus around in order to get what you want. In fact, it's probably not best for you Um, because you don't know what's best for you. And I frankly don't know what's best for me, but I do know that Jesus loves me, that he won't leave me, that he won't hurt me, that he's merciful toward me, that he knows me and he wills my best. And hope is the mark of the gospel and that when I'm troubled, he'll help me. So, you know, tonight in the middle of the night, when you can't sleep, you're worried about your grandkids or your spouse or your job or, you know, pick something, right? Lord, help. And I would suggest to you that you, let's see, that takes about two seconds tops to say, so Lord, help. So that would be 30 times a minute. And you engineers in the crowd can do a little math about how many times you could do that in an hour. So you you say that a couple thousand times tonight, and I guarantee you, um, you'll fall asleep before you know it. If not, call me, but not on the hotline. You can call me tomorrow after, I don't know, coffee and a bagel, say 9.30, 10 o'clock your time, okay? All right, so um, here we go. We'll just pray together as we go. Then we'll um, unmute, and you can stick around if you want, or you can go home if you want, but... uh, Anyway, fold your hands, close your eyes. We'll pray together. Um, Lord, help. Amen. All right. Thanks for coming around. Um, See you when I see you, hopefully in church. Okay. Love you all. See you soon. With uh, Lent starting next week. It is starting next week. Who's talking? I just can't pick it up. Is that you, Betsy? Yes. So, yeah, we're working on it, but um, there'll be ashes uh, three times on Ash Wednesday. And then um, the rest of the, you know, the rest of Lent will just sort of play out. Uh, We'll have three services on Monday, Thursday, two on Good Friday, I think probably two vigils and three on Easter Sunday. And that should hopefully give enough seats to everybody who would want to come. Uh, You know, we're still working out the details. Don't hold me exactly to that, but, you know, it'll look something like that. So, yeah. My question actually is, do you have um, suggestions, ideas, resources for fasting? Because I know in the past you have sometimes talked about fasting during Bible class. Yeah, we'll probably, we'll probably miss that this year. Um, Yeah. I mean, I think I, you know, I, it's these individuals, I, you know, it's hardly, I, it's funny. I, I feel like, you know, now that I'm almost, you know, at the end of my career, I can just sort of say things to you. It's not really Lent without fasting. Come on. I mean, the whole point of the church here is that you have ups and downs. So of course I would encourage you to fast, you know, for the right reasons to every time it pinches a bit, it refocuses your prayers. And frankly, Jesus says, you know, some demons only come out by prayer and fasting. So at the very least with your fasting, say prayers. 
there are classic ways you can use your Google machine, you know, to find them. But uh, there are classic things of everything from no meat on Friday to, you know, um, there are different kinds of fast during the week. I would pick one that's not too big for you. Um, I would think about how you might proceed, you know, kind of food is a basic one. But you remember I've run from the church fathers every, almost every year I run a, a one or two that says, hey, giving up food's easy. You, what, you know what you should do is giving up, you know, chewing on your next door neighbor, right? Remember, why don't you give up, why don't you give up gossip? Why don't you give up lying? Why don't you give up being mean? Um, so, and some combina- combination of that often helps, you know. Um, Giving up food is a, simply a discipline. It's in some way to show that you can do it. And in some ways, a reminder when it pinches that you think about why you're doing it. And when you think about why you're doing it, you think about what change, what other change. Fasting is just kind of a signal. Um, and, you know, of course, you, you don't do it on the street corner, but sometimes you do it with other people because you can encourage each other. So, you know, if you want to, find half a dozen people to do it with or do it with, as a family, you know, sure. If you can, if you can make that work, but I would, I would do something. Uh, I would do something. Um, and the other positive things, all the other disciplines we always talk about, you know, tithing and alms or, you know, giving alms in Lent is a fabulous thing. All right. So um, yeah, Lent's coming uh, Ash Wednesday on the 17th. So have a nice fat Tuesday plan ahead. Uh, you know, to, have, to have, plan ahead on Tuesday to have something to repent on on Wednesday. That's the way of the church, right? Uh, so you got a few days in advance to do that. And then, you know, uh, we'll see you, see you next week at this time. All good? All right. Sleep well. Good night.